Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and, of course, my one, my only, Christopher, because we make such an awesome team. Chris, who have we got on today? And make sure you introduce my friend correctly this time, not like last time. So, Grant, if you're listening, I'm still really sorry. (laughs) But today we have got Zane Whitney, who who is a uh, documentary filmmaker and PhD historian, who I understand you've turned to the dark side to do Polish military history. Unfortunately, yes. Whoa! Whoa, whoa. Hold your horses. Rephrase that one more time. I mean, in the most turn, loving turn way possible, side. yes. Good. Now, <laughs> uh, we have been pissing around probably for the best part of an hour before we actually start recording this podcast, so we're actually going to pretend to be serious now. So... A very important question to you, Zane. Why the hell did you start Polish history? And be nice. Well, I surprisingly to some people, I started Polish history not in the military history sense of the word. I started Polish history because of my study of the Holocaust. And it was actually Dr. Doris Bergen's book, um, War and Genocide, that I realized I had already kind of thought maybe I could approach the Holocaust in a military operation kind of way. And her book, when it first came out back in 2005, really kind of solidified that idea to me. And so really that's what, that's kind of what became about with Polish history. And then I moved also more into military history, looking at things like operation overlord and everything else that was going on. And then of course I found this unit and was surprised when there was a, a Polish group. And so I was able to take Poland and military history and kind of put them together in a really interesting way. And not because of me. Well, not originally because of you, but eventually with throughout this endeavor that I've been doing with this organization and with this group, it has become more so because I'm not just a traditional military historian. I like to do very much cultural and social history and as well inside of those aspects. And so for me, I've had to learn the, you know, Polish culture in a way that is different because of you (laughs) and some other friends. So. No, it's good. It's good. It's nice to have a Polish military historian that's not from Poland because you have a slightly different perspective on things and uh, you can open different ways of thinking and, yeah, I like it. It's interesting. Right. 
I think Chris uh, should kick us off with actual history and instead of me incessantly jabbering. <laughs> okay, so I, I know that the Polish Navy left, before, most of them left before the Germans invaded. And I've had a lecture about 25 minutes ago about the uh, Polish Air Force left sooner. But in October 1939, the campaign ends with Poland being divided between the Soviets and the Germans. But where did all the, um, where did all the armed forces go that didn't surrender to them? So a lot of them actually left before October of 39. They, most of them were leaving about halfway through September of 39. Um, Roger Morehouse has a really great book, of course, on the invasion of Poland and what happened. So really what happens with our group is that a large portion, about two brigades, if not larger divisions, leave Poland in various capacities and they make their way to France. And they're actually going to help the French fight the Germans. And then unfortunately, when France capitulates, that group of Poles end up having to again escape a country that is being occupied by the Germans. And they make their way to England and they actually set up shop uh, in, up in Scotland and conduct training exercises for themselves. And it's within that group that the members of the, of my organization actually are found. Um, like, for instance, there's the the captain of the group, he makes his way not through the same processes as his other cohorts, but uh, he ends up going to Hungary and a few other places to try and get and make his way to um, to England. Because, that, of course, at that time, Germany is all over the place trying to take over the continent. What's really interesting is there's so many ways that people end up getting to Britain or France or whichever way around you want, you know. My great grandma, well, one of my great, because both of them actually escape. One of them ends up going through Romania to France, Scotland, blah, 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 blah. The other one ends up being stuck in an internment camp in Spain, for example, because, sorry, French people, you decided to betray my fellow Poles, so you suck. And it's interesting because he then eventually ends up in, in, in Britain anyway. But what is also really interesting is the amount of people that tried to escape and the amount of people actually didn't get to France, let alone Hungary or Romania. And this is what I've been working on, obviously, from a different perspective, not a military perspective, with people sure. that were being captured on, on borders known as tourists who end up being shoved into prisons and then eventually concentration camps or forced labour or executed, in other words, in other layman's terms. So, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting when you look at when you kind of take the scope out and not just look at Poland when it comes to this particular group. But when you look at the other troops of this organization and you see some of how a lot of them, like for instance, several members of, of the three troop, they actually were kicked out of Britain by the British government and were headed to, they were sent away to Canada. And it was about halfway to Canada that they were turned around. The boat itself was turned around and they ended up coming back to, to England and were able to make their way in through auxiliary corps to eventually make their way into being a part of the commando units and then were brought into being a part of number 10. So it, it's not just it's, it, it's that's why I like this group is because you get a sense that everyone was trying to get to England because that seemed to be the place where all the governments were heading that were in exile. And then you also see that their organizations were trying to get there. And then sometimes early in the war, you had situations where Britain was trying to get rid of everyone and then just basically realized it's better off for us to allow organizations that are in exile 
to start participating and fighting back. So I know that the uh, in, within the RAF, there's a lot of they weren't keen on having foreign pilots and foreign units first, and it, they were going to have difficulty integrating them. Was was it the same for the army and the commandos? Actually, it was. It was very similar, and that was that was part of what became the what the British would refer to as the international experiment or this international brigade of number ten, and that was a big concern of theirs. More so in the fact of signals work, of of being how are we going to get all of these different languages to communicate and cooperate and understand what everyone's trying to do. But you see that a lot in in the ranks as well when it comes to having these foreigners and not knowing and having a hesitancy of saying, well, how do I really want to have you next to me when your country was overrun by Germany? And you see, at least in the archive so far, what I've been able to notice when it comes to the British situation when it comes to Poland, particularly at the beginning, is that while they uh, appreciate what the Poles are doing and how well they're fighting, there is an overwhelming concern that are they going to, in a different setup, be able to truly fight back with the Germans? And there's so there's there's some discussion within within the hierarchy there of the, you know, the chiefs of staff of just how well the Poles are going to, to do. And you see a little bit of that with six troop. There's a hesitancy when they move over to special service brigade and start participating in, in, in events that there's, they haven't quite have been as battle hardened as some of the other units. And then you get into fight and you realize our assumptions are not what they seem to be. And what's interesting about you bringing up the Royal Air Force stuff with the, the foreigners is when you look at like, particularly at the national um, army museum there in London, there is a, a small statue by the bookshop of General Anders, and there's a there you know there's a plaque there that discusses the Polish participation in the war. And what's interesting is they, there is no mention of the Polish um, fighters in the RAF that helped with with everything. And I, I think it's part of the reason why I'm attracted to this group is because larger history of these occupations and these operations, it's hard to get all the smaller groups into it. And when I brought my group up to the to the bookstore person, she actually said to me that her father used to tell her stories about foreigners being with him in the army and fighting next to him but that he didn't really see that in the histories being written about the second world war. And that's kind of my attraction to this, this organization is because it's a small group, but they're not well known. I like to refer to them as being silenced by history because it's much easier to talk about when, especially talking about Poland, it's much easier to talk about the Polish two Corps or the armored division or things like that. And you kind of miss the nuances of some of these other smaller organizations. Well, continuing talking about the 10th Troop, talk to us about when this unit was actually formed, because it's not like 1939, bang, here we go, here's a commando troop, this is how we're going to basically run the military. It's a little bit slightly of a longer process than that, isn't it? It is. So, and then there has to be a slight distinction to say that what commando unit I'm just referring to is actually an army commando unit. And Army commando units only operated from 1940 to about 1945, 46. Um, everyone else will know Royal Marine commandos, and that they have a long. The Royal Marines specifically have a long history, dating back well into the 1600s and, and currently into the present. Um, 
and actually these army commandos oftentimes were attached to other royal marine commando units number 10 inter-allied commando unit was not actually started as an inter-allied commando it was originally started as just a standard number 10 army commando unit and that was initiated with the rest of them around 1940 but they were unable to get enough people to volunteer to actually form number 10. And so it just became a nomenclature that didn't have anyone attached to it. And so when things were getting heated and a lot more governments in exile were making their way to London, there was immense pressure placed on the British to find ways for these governments in exile to fight back. And so Mountbatten actually had a conversation with a lot of the command, the, you know, the chiefs of staff, and they had a discussion. And finally, it wasn't until June 26th of 1942 that the War Establishment Committee passed and gave the go ahead to form a headquarters for number 10 with the intention of creating an inter-allied commando unit. And authority was finally given to the establish it in on July 2nd of 1942. So what we know of is number or what I know of is number 10 inter allied commando unit was originally and fully established with its authority in 1942 in July. And it was placed of course, under Western command, which consisted of an HQ and initially four troops, but there was the idea of increasing it to eight potentially. And the first four were the secret troop. You had the, um, the Dutch, you had the Norwegians, and of course, he had the French as well. Uh, number 10 would have their HQ would be at all British personnel. And that would be about 44 people total. That included officers and other ranks. And then each troop. So, for instance, sit number six troop or six Polish troop. They would also have their own headquarters, but they would be all home personnel. And that would total anywhere between the number of personnel required for that would be about 85 to 89 members. And that would be officers as well as uh, other ranks. Um, The key port for that one was obviously the personnel for signals had to have someone. Either they had to have someone who was British and could speak the language of whatever troop they were with or the person, one of them had to be able to speak English to be able to communicate with the British HQ. And so it gets a little crazy there at the beginning. But the Poles don't actually come into the into the foray until um, September of 42. But earlier in the year when they were first established, there was a conversation had by Lord Mountbatten and General Sikorsky who agreed in principle to form a small troop for this commando unit. And that was actually a conversation had in March of 42 before the war establishment uh, committee finally said yes to it. And it wasn't until September 14th that captain um, Vladislav Smokovsky and his number two, Lieutenant Zalevsky reported to the HQ to begin forming six troop. And so on the 28th of September is when the rest of the formation was brought into official capacity for six troop in September uh, in late September 42. And they consisted of a total of seven officers and 86 other ranks that constituted the six troop um, for the members. 
So um, what was the training like? So the training for in number 10 inter-allied commando unit was actually not that uncommon. It was, it was basically the same as your standard commando unit. And so anyone designated for commando training would end up going to Acnacary in Scotland and would go through about six to eight weeks worth of training. And that would consist of hand-to-hand combat. There would be um, certain obstacle courses that were required that oftentimes were done under the auspices of, you know, live ammunition being fired overhead, you know, real hand grenades being thrown into the river so that, you know, the idea behind it was you were immersed as quickly as possible in conditions that would allow you that when you're in a raiding party and you're making landfall on the beach that anything flying over your head didn't bother you it didn't make you skittish you were prepared ready to go to get the job accomplished and so even the members of six troop they all would participate in the commando training and then they would go once they were completing of that they would then head off into their own uh locations and their own hqs and they would still be conducting trainings um it could be individualized for instance some of the members of the hq group would go and have specialized training in certain sabotage techniques or things like that, particularly to kind of prep those individuals in case something were to happen with the HQ while you're in the battlefield and you need to retreat. You can basically destroy your, all the things that intelligence collectors would like to have and potentially set booby traps for people to try and take out as many enemies as you possibly could. And then you had group trainings or exercises is what they ended up becoming where Let's say the Belgian troop and the and the um, Polish troop would have an exercise where the Polish troop is the enemy and they're trying to get you to not land on the beach, and the Belgian troop is doing an exercise trying to make a a, a landing. That wasn't uncommon to happen where you were constantly training if you weren't out um, or attached to some other unit and participating in the battlefield. Does it? Does the training differ for the poles at all, or is it just all one for all and one for one? The only real difference for the poles, and even in general, the members of Number Ten, is that they were able to keep their own military uh, style to them. While they were in training, they wore the British uniform, but for instance, the French troop, of course, had to have the French ascot because they have to have their ascots. Um, but you kept your own ranks. And actually, for the for the Polish troop, they were kept under uh, Polish military law. And so if something happened and a certain member of the of the group committed an atrocity, they weren't tried by the British. They were tried by their own. That was a key factor for the uh, the agreement to be made to have them in there, that they were kept under Polish military law, even though they were fighting under under the Brits. And so you also had a situation where not only would they keep, like I said before, um, their military dress, but they would also have their own style of marching regimen that they would do. And that was allowed to be kept even during their training, um, as opposed to everyone else at Acnacary, you were just a commando. The number 10 commandos knew ahead of time where they were going, what they were going to be doing. So it was, they knew they were the Polish troop of the number 10 inter-allied commando unit, even at training, when the rest of them just went through the commando training like it was basic training, and then were held in what was called a holding unit. 
at what was also referred to as the commando depot. And they were held there until they were assigned to other commandos, whether it was number four, number six, or number nine commando, any of those other army commandos, they were held until it was like, I need this many men to replenish the ranks here. And then they would call that person's number up and say, go here. As soon as uh, the Polish troop ended their training in Acnecary, they went straight to their HQ. There was no being placed in the holding unit there at the commando depot. They went straight on to where they needed to go because it was already had been established. Uh, just before Chris jumps in with the next question, I just want to just underline one more thing. You have how many troops within the 10th Inter-Allied Army Commando? God's a mouthful. How many troops do you have and which countries do they belong in? So the countries vary, um, but also at at its height, there were 10 troops. But there's some math that there's not really math. There's some wiggle room that you have to look at in there. So the actual com- commando unit, number 10 inter allied comprised of French, Dutch, Belgian, Norwegian, Polish, Yugoslavian, and an X troop. However, at the height of this, so we're talking late 44, 45, you have two French troops and three Belgian troops by the time it's done. The largest of course was the French because they had, quite a bit that actually those two comprised about 400 men um but you also have to remember that you know here i i had mentioned before that the polish troop had seven officers and 86 other ranks that was just the fighting force that wasn't the hq establishment so you're looking at a total of well over 150 men who are just from poland in this organization um, and of course, X troop was the most secretive. That was that comprised of German speaking Jews who were either from Germany, they were from Hungary or from Austria, and they were used and took on British surnames to try and give an extra layer of protection, if you will, in case they were uh, captured. And interestingly, members of that group, um, most of them actually kept those names after the war was over with they did not go back to their originals and there were a few that i found in the archive um where one individual refused to speak to ian deer who wrote the first book over 10 commando and uh, because of the fact that he was still working and had a business that was heavily tied in austria and in germany and he did not want it to be known that he was a german-speaking jew who fought for the british during the war because of he was concerned about retaliation business-wise after the war was over with so they're very it's a very interesting group um there's a book been written about it by a jewish historian out of hunter college um dr leah garrett it's a very good book but uh that's actually how i i came familiar with the unit was a gentleman who was a part of x troop but um but yeah, so you had French, Dutch, Belgian, Norwegian, Polish, Yugoslavian, and X. The Yugoslavian troop took the longest to be established. They took them about a year and a half to two years after everyone else was there to finally get one established. And they ran into a situation where half of the group were for the crown. The other half was for Tito and <laughs> got into a fight with each other. And finally, the British said, no, you guys just got to go away. So they were they were disbanded. Um 
But the entire group was suspended, like I said, in 45, except for X troop. They were used in into the occupation of Germany because of their uniqueness. They were the they were heavily into the intelligence and the interrogators um, aspect of things. All of these troops had that. That was mostly what, like, for instance, Norwegian troop. They did that on the raids that they were participating in in their home country. They were the guys that hit the beach and told the locals, we're not here for you. We're here for the Germans. Do you have any information for us? You know, do you have any maps that, that maybe, or can you tell us where the Germans are located? Like that was kind of their job. Um, although I may have stepped into a question at some point, but, um, but yeah, that was kind of what a lot of these guys did. Don't worry. Don't worry. We'll get to that. We're going to, we're going to come to that. <laughs> There's just a lot to talk about with the group. It's, I always like to say you really can't Wikipedia the group because you don't get enough information because there's a lot more nuance and a lot more complexity to this that if you're really wanting to know about them, you really can't do a couple hours worth of Wikipedia because you're not going to get enough information. First of all, who the hell uses Wikipedia amongst this story? Okay, I lie. Occasionally <laughs> once in a blue moon when it comes to something stupid like... I don't know, the French Revolution, and I need to understand the basics of that for a podcast. Sure. I get that. That's, a, I mean, an easy, quick, like, I forgot something, let me Wikipedia that is fine. But, like, trying to rely on Wikipedia to understand number 10 inter-allied is, you just, you lose the substance. You need to rewrite it. <laughs> That's probably why my first book didn't sell. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind for when I write mine. We're <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on from my uh, horrific research stuff. So, so we've mentioned a certain amount of action so far, but what other kind of combat roles were they involved in? That's a really great question. And part of that is the reason why it is such a great question is because of the complex nature of number 10 inter-allied commando. And the reason for that is, is that, when we think of the commando units, particularly during this stage, we always think of them operating as if it's number four. Number four went and did, for instance, the raid on Dieppe. They they did that as a group. And number 10 inter-allied commando never operated as a full unit on its own, ever. It actually only one time in its complete history from 42 to 45, did they ever all come together and have a parade march once. That was it in its entire history because what was happening like i had said before is that these troops were actually being attached to other commando units and so i like to tell people that this particular unit what makes them kind of a unique case study is that from 42 to 45 number 10 participated in every major raid of the second world war during that time period of 42 to 45 now you back up a little bit to the raid on Dieppe and it was still the very early stages of number 10 being a unit. And so the only people that really participated were the members, current members at the time of X troop. And they were attached to commando raids that happened on Dieppe. And so they participated in that. And then later on, once the unit got full, once the Norwegians went through all of their training and they were prepared and had all the equipment they needed, then they actually exclusively only operated in Norway. 
they didn't go anywhere else. They weren't like some of the Belgians who went with the Poles to, for instance, to Italy, but also were able to come back. And some of them participated in, in other operations in Belgium or the French who from the beginning kind of established that if there's going to be an invasion on the continent of Europe and it's going to happen in France, our people are going to participate in that. And so, of course, the French troop, both of them end up joining the units that are involved in that particular incident, they participated and stayed with those units through the end of the war. So the first action is really the raid on Dieppe. And for the Poles, it's a little bit later. Well, let's stick with that. Let's stick with the Poles and what the Poles actually did, because they don't, they're not in France, they're in Norway. They end up in, lo and behold, Italy. How the heck do they end up there? So they end up in Italy because, well, the Mediterranean at the time was extremely important to the British um, strategic plan. And so they are are told in September of 43, so roughly about a year, almost to the day that um, the leadership arrived to their HQ, they're leaving for overseas. So on the, four, on the 13th of September of 1943 is when they head to North Africa. And they arrive in North Africa. They go to a transit camp just outside of Algiers to wait further orders. Um, and that happens. They finally get there on the 23rd of September of 43. And then they move again after a while. It takes a while. They finally get to move again on the 23rd of November. Um, and they are reporting to number two special service brigade and the reason it takes so long is that there's a discussion of should we send this group interestingly to the middle east and fight with the um commando units that they have in the middle east or do they really need to be used over in italy because it's not just the poles it's actually the poles and the belgians so it's a small group of people um, that they're that they're sending over there, and so they're kind of like, do we really want to use them there? And then, and eventually, the decision is made that we're going to send them to the we're going to send them to Italy, and so they report to Malfetta, Italy. It's a harbor town on the southeastern side of Italy. Basically, if you go think of it, uh, the boot right where the boot starts, the heel of the boot starts, is where uh, they end up going. And they get there on the 3rd of December of 43. They remain attached to number two special service brigade until they're dismissed from number 10 and absorbed into the Polish two Corps for Monte Casino, which will be happening later. But uh, once they get there, they have about 10 days of weapons training and organization because they're preparing for combat. They're going to be placed on the line. And so the men of six troop get attached to 56 reconnaissance regiment. And they're added to the line at uh, Pesco Pinataro, and they begin patrols almost immediately. They set up shop, and that night they're starting patrols. Um, the day after their first night patrol, actually, the Polish troops encounter the enemy. They're holed up in a house on the other side of the river. And so it's the Santa River, and it's a very mountainous area. It was part of the reason why they were chosen for that uh, was because of the fact that commando units were trained to climb cliffs. I mean, their obstacles were were things that um, 
weren't necessarily issues for commandos. I mean, and the interesting thing about this area of Italy is that the Germans had destroyed as many villages along the rivers as possible, including bridges. And so that particular river, while may not be very deep, the current was pretty quick. And so a lot of people just couldn't get over the river. But commandos are like, I'll just make a toggle bridge, which is something they learned from their their training. And they'll just use ropes and these wooden planks, and they'll just make their own bridge and get across and do what they need to. And so they encounter them holed up in a house on the other side of the river. And after an intense gunfight back and forth, a Polish soldier ends up being wounded in the leg and he gets exposed to the open. And so... Under the cover of fire, Captain Smorkowski and another soldier crawl to the wounded man, and they get him prepped to move. And then the three of them crawl 150 yards back to safety under fire. Um, They all would return to base, everybody, including the wounded man. And what's interesting is that later on in the month of December, around the 20th, the evening of the 20th, there's an unnamed Italian civilian who... um, they come across and he's in, had been interrogated by the Germans three days prior to arriving to the British. And he details an attack plan by the Germans to cut off the British field guns just east of, of Caprakata. Um, so the area that these guys are patrolling in there is about 29 and a half miles, square miles is where they're, they're patrolling. So they, um, they cross the river at St. Uh, Angelo de Pesco at 7 p.m. before clearing the town of Pesco Pinarto. That's what they're wanting to do. That's what the, the Germans are wanting to do, clear everything. So the com- they find out about this, and they order the command orders the artillery at Capricata to fire concentrations on the Angelo position of the river at 7 So then the Poles are warned to be prepared for a long evening of attack by the Germans. And so they're ordered to stand by. And this is around eight. So about an hour. So at seven and then about an hour later, about eight o'clock, the Poles report two enemy attack parties are from the east. They're totaling what they think is about 40 German mountain soldiers in each party. So you're looking at roughly 80 guys coming their way. So at 845, word comes of a third 40 man attack from the west. So between first contact at 8 p.m. and midnight, so between 8 p.m. and midnight, the Poles were surrounded and fend off the Germans in their attempts to attack that line in various places. It isn't until after midnight that the Poles report that German activity had subsided and they suspected the Germans were in the neighborhood preparing for a final attack. So at 3 a.m., that attack finally arrives. Um, With the assistance of the artillerymen, they continue to hold off the German attack until 5 a.m. when the Germans finally decide to retreat. They sent out five patrols in directions to see what happened to the German forces. They basically could not find them. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when we think about it, there was a force of just under 80 that the Poles had, and they were able to hold off the Germans in an attack that consisted of approximately 160 Germans for nine hours. And out of this entire fight, they only have three individuals that suffer what is referred to in the report as slight casualties, almost like maybe a grazing of a bullet or something like that. But the interesting thing is that the total of Germans wounded and dead is unknown. They were not able to confirm how many they took out, but apparently they did well enough that, uh, you know, they were able to fend off that attack. They're not actually pulled from the line until the 12th of January of 1944 for rest and reorganization after gaining high praise from the high command and providing to the British and proving actually to the British that they deserved to fight the Germans any chance they got. Because like I had mentioned before, and we had discussed earlier, there had been hesitation among the higher command at combined operations headquarters about the combat efficiency of six troop. And that particular engagement kind of put that notion to rest. And so they would serve under the special service brigade and participate in battles more so than just that. They would also go on to participate at Salerno again at the river Sangro and also at Monte Ornito. But what's interesting is I had mentioned to you before that roughly 80 group members of the group, by the time a file, a report's filed on the 27th of February, the initiate, there was a, a discussion of returning the Polish troops back to the UK. And in that report, they mentioned that the unit strength was only maybe 40 guys. So while they're there, they're fighting, they lose almost half of their men. And the request was made to pull them from the line and bring them back to the to the UK, interestingly, so that they could participate in the invasion of Normandy. However, Churchill had made um, a very strict order that no commando unit or any commando soldier should be pulled from the Mediterranean without his expressed permission. And so the chiefs of staff decided that because the smallness of the remaining men, but the the fierceness of their fighting, they should stay and participate with the rest of the campaign in Italy and not come back and participate in the invasion of Normandy, which would be Operation Overlord. Now, there's some more political discussions that can be had about why that necessarily is, but that was the decision that was ultimately made. And then, of course, they're they're transferred a couple months later in April to the command of the Polish Two Corps, and they're officially disbanded from Number Ten in August of forty four. So 
basically they could participate at Monte Casino. However, by that time, they had dwindled even further because of patrols and skirmishes and, and fighting to about 25 men total. I've, I've always had a lot of love for the Italian campaign because my grandfather was there and he always made a point about everyone kept going on about Overlord in France when actually they were doing all the real fighting in Italy. However, he did tell me that he wasn't at Monte Casino, so couldn't really tell me about it. So what was the... It was quite hard fighting, though, wasn't it, for uh, Monte Cassino with the German paratroopers? It, it was. It was very fierce fighting. And as a matter of fact, there had been several attempts previously made by the British and the Americans to take Monte Cassino. And it's actually not until the Polish II Corps really decides to, to have a, a go at it, as they say, that things actually started turning around. And um, the unit... Like I had said before, they transferred themselves back to being strictly under the Polish command. And so by the 13th of May, the unit is increasing its size. So it's up to 16 officers and 78 men. And this was done by basically including battle-hardened men from the desert campaign for Poland. They were able to replenish the troops. Because that's another conversation that can be had is the issue of the fighting that's happening with Poland and with this particular unit, and while they're not able to replenish their ranks as quickly as the Belgians and even the French because of the manpower is that for the Poles in number 10, they just had to make do with what they had, uh, the amount of men that they had and still get the job done because at the end of the day, the Polish commanders and chiefs were not really willing to, to send more guys to be strictly with number 10. They needed as many, they themselves needed as many people as, as possible. But finally, when they transfer over to, to the Polish two Corps, they can start being replenished. And so they end up getting assigned to the fifth, uh, Kresova division, which was led by Lieutenant general, uh, Sulish. Now six troop was attached to the 15th Poznan Lancers and was tasked with capturing uh, Colisan Angelo via Monte uh, Castellone Ridge. That was their assignment. Their engagement would start at 7, and the second attempt for capturing their target would be accomplished by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, it was a difficult assignment because of shortages of ammunition, which according to some reports, resulted in rocks being thrown instead of being able to use their guns. Um, Wait, hold so, on. I'm cutting yeah. you off here. Hold on, sure. hold on. Sure. Did you just say that they were using rocks instead of guns? Yes, I did. Holy shit, okay. I mean, again... The, the Germans the whole... were as well. Yeah, I mean, at that point, everybody's... When your ammunition is running low on both sides and you, you're trying to get rid of somebody, I mean, the next thing you've got, you've got plenty of rocks, especially in that area, in that mountainous area. You've got enough rocks to go. But yeah, they the Polish troops were like, again, as is the case, the job needs to be done. So <laughs> whatever means necessary, right? Um, heavy mortar fire would inflict 19 casualties. So the troop would go down to seven officers and 45 men from 16 officers and 78 men. And then they would leave. And on the 19th of May, they were uh, still attached to the same division and they would remain at what is known as Inferno, where food and water were in short supply. And then they would move again on the 20th to head to what would be 
uh, well, they were going to be transported to Capriata. Now, what's interesting is at the next day, they were able to kind of replenish their ranks. So they're up to 10 officers and 54 men instead of the seven and 45. So they're slightly better at that point. Um, they would basically stay there until the 3rd of June when they're shipped off with the 111th company made up of Italian volunteers, actually, who were recruited to protect local bridges. Um, it gave the troop an opportunity to recover with those wounded at Monte Cassino returning to the line. And so those that were able to make it after Monte Cassino would go, uh, that's what they would do. Um, but it was very intense fighting for them. Like I said, they lost a lot of men, um, participated very well in Casino, were an extremely important part of it. And then, of course, they would continue on with the campaign um, and go, you know, almost continue on to the Adriatic. And then, of course, they would make their way getting larger, getting smaller based on what was happening. And then um, the big one was on August 25th. The troop was now one of five troops attached to the second commando motorized battalion. So in the process of reorganization, that troop grows to 18 officers and 236 men. And what's interesting about that growth is that many of them, according to reports, they were formed from Polish POWs from the German army who of course had been forcibly conscripted into joining the German army. And so a lot of them were able to then, because of what the Poles were doing, join the Poles and fight again under what would be the second commando motorized battalion. So they would spend their winter. The first independent commando company, of course, would spend their winter in Osnuti to recuperate. They would train and take on these new troops and incorporate them. Cause that was very important that, for the most part, you've got a very small, at this point, very small core of remnants of number 10 training that was then continuously training all of these others in that same vein. And so they needed time to get everybody. But by March 2nd, they've grown from 18 officers to 34 officers and upwards of 600 men at their disposal. Um, at the end of March, they've gotten even larger at this point because of all the people that they're able to participate with. And they moved to the front at Bologna on the 7th of April of 45, they leave where they were, uh, where they were winterized at and they join basically Polish two Corps, And of course they fight in operation Buckland, which is the battle for Bologna and do very well. And then they're tasked with actions in the Po Valley to encircle retreating troops and capture the towns of Castel, uh, Maggiore and others. They're moved again and they stay for a little while. And then they're moved again to an army camp where they're now 63 officers and, and 79 non-commissioned officers and about 900 men. And they wait to be decommissioned. and But they keep training because they're bored and they don't want to be bored. So to stave off boredom, we're just going to train everybody um, and keep going. So yeah, and so eventually they, they keep going. They make their way back to um, 
as does the rest of the Polish group, make their way back to Britain. I mean, we obviously know what's... Well, they didn't know, but we know what happens at the end of the war. Yeah, Russia does not, if anybody ever... These people keep rolling these stupid lines at me that Russia or the Soviet Union liberated Poland. They did fucking not. They just swapped one occupation for another. So... One occupation is swapped for another. It's dangerous to go back home. What is happening with these guys after they end up in Britain? Where are they? Do they go home? Are they persecuted? What sort of, what do we know about them? So the poll situation is actually much more different than the rest of number 10. Because for the rest of number 10, for the French, for the Dutch, for the Belgians, for the Norwegians, they're all able to go back to their countries. And as best I can describe, I've been able to officially find, for the Belgians at least, but um, based off of some other research that has been done by other scholars like Ian Deere, who when he wrote his book um, on 10 Commando in the 80s, basically everyone but Poland can trace their lineage of their current special forces commando type units that they currently have in their countries. They can trace that completely back to their participation in number 10 inter-Allied commando unit. Particularly for the Belgians, I've I've got a document from the archive that basically lays out that they've even created their own version of Acnecary there in Belgium at the end of the war, where they're able to basically do the same style of training that they did at Acnecary in Scotland when they went through that whole process. For the Poles... Because they're with the main government, they're with the main unit, the main army, and the fact that in 45, the um, British government pulls recognition of the government in exile in London and gives full recognition to the communist government of Poland at the end of the war. They're basically held in a camp. It's a former military and POW camp where they're sitting there for three months waiting to be transferred to another camp. Um, So they're there until the end of 46 before they're finally dispersed and disbanded and decommissioned in a way where they're allowed to go their separate ways. And most, particularly the members of my group that survive, I don't know of a single one that actually goes back to Poland. I mean, we've got um, a a set of brothers who um, fight and actually are there the whole time. And one in particular, his name is Lieutenant Henry Giedvab. He actually doesn't change his last name because it doesn't sound, according to us that don't know Polish, don't know that it's actually a Jewish name. And he basically... He gets wounded in action. He's a very decorated individual, um, was a member of the Chiho Chimney, which is the silent unseen. Um, he and his wife go to Canada, and that's because he, his father, um, starved to death in the Warsaw Ghetto. And his mother was killed in the streets of Warsaw. She was gunned down. So he didn't have family ties anymore back in Poland and her, his wife was deeply afraid of the Soviet occupation and did not want to go back because of what could happen to them. So they left for Canada. Um, 
Henrik would die in 2005 in, in Canada after 25 years as a textile artist. But that's the case with a lot of the members of, of the Polish troupe is that they, they really either stayed in Great Britain, whether that was England, whether that was um, in Scotland. But a lot of them also went to the U.S. and Canada. I mean, our our fearless leader of six troop who made his made his way all the way through um, fighting the Germans in the invasion, escaping and making his way back and fights all the way through the Italian campaign. He goes to Chicago and passes away in 65. But he, he he went to the U.S. and went and came to Chicago. So I mean, a lot of these guys. That's what happened, and and for obvious reasons. And I think that's part of what um, drew me to the unit, and that's part of the reason why I feel like I can't have a conversation about the group without knowing and understanding Polish history in general during the Second World War, and particularly also what happens in the immediate aftermath when it comes to what's happening, because. Yeah, you could say that this unit, it could be strictly, you know, military history, but there's so much, in my opinion, so much more to this group and what took place and the differences. You know, you look at like the French troop where from the beginning, the Polish, the, the French government and the British government have this agreement and have this understanding. And it's not so with Poland and with the British government. It starts that way. But the more the Soviets take over and, quote unquote, liberate Poland, the more you see pushback from the British basically saying to the Polish government, you need to appease the Russians as much as possible because they're our allies. And you need to come to some sort of diplomatic terms with them. And it's interesting because you can kind of see that play out. I had kind of alluded to it earlier when I talked about, you know, political forces not allowing the Poles to participate in France. You know, one of the reasons is that um, there was a concern about what the Germans would do propaganda wise. Should these members of the Polish troop be captured by the Germans if they're fighting to liberate the continent, because then the Germans could just use the Poles as a propaganda tactic to say, hey, you, the British can't even do this themselves. They have to send the Poles to try and take us on. Um, which seems like the strangest thing to say no to, but when you're trying to appease the Russians and keep them happy, you start to see how, at least for me, some of that, some of the politics playing out diplomatically with these governments in exile trickles down into what you see with my group. Which is why I, I, you know, I, I refer to the, to this group as it's not a league of, I mean, I've heard people say it's an early version of the League of Nations, but it's really not. It's not an early version of the League of Nations. It's an early version of NATO before we even knew what the idea of NATO was. It's, it's more of a, for me, this is a unit that has governments in exile finding other ways of fighting back that includes some sort of diplomacy because diplomatically it helps them having these members participate. But for Poland, it doesn't seem to matter because at the end of the day, the government in exile is unrecognized. They go with the communist government officially in Poland. And it's not even until 1989 that the Polish government in exile acknowledges and recognizes the members that are still alive 
from Six Troop. It took that long. That that is a somewhat insane amount of time. <laughs> and I actually don't know that I've. I don't even think the current. Well, not, since the '90s, when you know the government changed over, I don't even think what we would consider the Polish government since the night since the fall of communism. I don't think they've even acknowledged this organization. Zane, my lovely, I don't know why it's taking me so long to get you onto this podcast. I'm so glad that we did. I'm so glad that we got to talk. I'm so glad that you got to ramble on about your research because we all love to do that a little bit. It's really <laughs> interesting, actually. Uh, I know I helped you out a little bit with the research myself, but being able to hear, I mean, you've gotten so far in this in what it's been a year a little bit longer how long have you been working on this uh well off and on since the pandemic actually not necessarily on six true but on the organization as a whole since the pandemic happened and everybody got locked down it's when i found out about the group and was looking into actually i was looking into it originally as a historical documentary and then basically decided to try my hand at a phd and then was going to use this organization as a as a springboard for that. And so, yeah, it started as that. And then Sixth Troop with Poland became a big part of it for me because of the larger conversation you can have. And so, yeah, it's been I've been working on the Sixth Troops aspect of it for about over a year. And uh, I still have more to do. I have another giant research trip next summer that I have to do to get the rest of it. So, yeah. Well, I've got a couple of ideas in my brain, which we'll talk about after the podcast, because while you were talking, some things popped into my mind where we could probably find some more information. So Zane, love it. I'm going to let Chris do the end of the wrapping because I just, I suck at it. (laughs) I was just saying, and you're trusting me not to mess it up. (laughs) No, I found it really interesting. I didn't know that much about it at all. So um, yeah, this would be really interesting. Um, When when you've... uh... When you find right, and you should write this as a book, you should definitely come on again, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll plug it and sell it in our in our bookshop, and everyone will make money, and it will be everyone will be happy. Absolutely. Thanks so much for <laughs> joining us, Zane. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us forty five minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 